Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. Back in December 2009, I visited the late Bill Hilder at his home in Oriwa. Bill served in the Royal Air Force during World War II as a fitter armourer. And for part of the war, he served on number 617 squadron, the Dambusters. He was also involved in a top-secret experimental project with Barnes Wallace. I managed to record some of Bill's memories at the time, and here's that interview. Right, I'll just start off with uh, the question I ask everybody that I um, do these interviews with, and that's your full name, rank and serial number. Bill Hilda, William Hilda, or Sandy, they used to call me. Uh, Fidder Armourer, Corporal, although I was an acting sergeant when I finished. Uh, 150046 is my number. And when did you um, join up with the RAF? With the RAF was about um, 1940. Okay. So I'd done five and a half years. Yeah. So, so where did you initially train as a, as a fitter armour or as an armour? Um, Melksham. Okay. And what was the training? I, I, I didn't know. Well, I didn't know what a, a spanner was in those days, and of course, you had to learn so many things about engineering that I'd never even heard of, because I was an office worker. Uh, I was only a young lad, and all I used to, all I used to do really was go and pay money into the bank for the firm. But um, that was a bit of a shock trying to learn all about the armory and that sort of stuff. Um, Yes, knowing all the different tools, all the, I didn't know there were so many different files even, you know. That's, <laughs> and they all had a particular job. But uh, then, then, of course, we got on to armaments, guns and bombs. Uh, well, my first uh, station was Hook in Hampshire. Uh, they were blending bombers. And um, they could only carry... 250 and 500 pound bombs in those days, early on in the war. And uh, then later on I got posted to um, Iceland. Do you, want, do you want to hear a bit of a funny story about that? Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, we went to this uh, place just outside Manchester where we got fitted out with um, tropical gear pith helmet and, and all that sort of stuff, shorts and shit. And we uh, were all busy trying those on in this bell tent. And um, someone said, I could get into those trousers with you, Sandy, you know, stupid size and everything. So, um, anyway, I got sent home on embarkation leave. And because uh, the family sees all your gear and say, oh, you're going somewhere hot going out in the desert somewhere. Anyway, we get back to this place at Manchester with all these bell tents and um, they issued us with, uh, they took all that stuff off us and they issued us with all cold gear, big alpaca greatcoats and snow goggles and stuff like this. So of course, when the family got the first letters from Iceland, they'd have had a bit of a shock as we did, um, 
going over on the on the ship from Glasgow to Iceland. Uh, you know, we were showing it in the bows of the ship. It was just a little coastal tramp steamer, really flat bottom boat, not meant for the North Atlantic. And um, uh, the old hammock was very comfortable, but uh, after we'd been on the boat about a day and a half, um, there was two corvettes joined us, one in front, one at the one at the stern, because we were all zigzagging for obvious reasons, and. Um, all of a sudden, the, the pom-poms started going off on the front corvette guns. So, of course, we all rushed to the side of the ship to see what's going on. And uh, and then our pom-poms on our, on our stir, bows and stern, they started off. Then the uh, we saw what was they were firing at. It was a mine floating just off the island of Rockall. don't know if you've heard of it. It's a lone island. Big island full of seagulls, and um, then the, the rear ship opened up, pom poms flying, you know, lots of noise, and that float, that mine's still floating unless it's rusted and sunk. So you can imagine how the navy felt; they were a bit embarrassed. We were all saying, "Thank goodness we got an army and an air force and all that." So anyway, we get to Iceland and uh, joined this squadron which I think was number 120 squadron and it was mostly uh, as I said with um, Liberators and what was the other one? I... Uh, the Hudson. Hudson's and, and the Hudson's and uh, they were on uh, submarine patrols because the North Atlantic was very important in those days it was bringing Lots of supplies, as you know, across the Atlantic, the umbilical cord, I called it, bringing food and oil and petrol and arms and everything that England needed. And they'd never have won the war without that, without the help of America. There's no two ways about that. So it was very important, this umbilical cord. And uh, that was we were, what we were busy doing. We were busy loading up landmines land and all sorts of stuff to throw out the submarines and they used to go out on patrols and uh, it was it was quite a thing to watch these liberators taking off in a snowstorm and disappearing in the snow you know conditions were pretty cold out there uh, if you picked up a spanner with your hands in the winter you'd have a job to let go but you could burn your hands and your skin off with the cold. So we had we had gloves to use, but they were very awkward to use gloves and tools at the same time. Big gloves. Anyway, uh, that was uh, 15 months I spent in Iceland. It was marvellous at times to see the aurora borealis and northern lights, that sort of stuff. And. Uh, and then I got this posting to 617 Squadron. Well, b before we get on to that, um, what sort of um, bombs and stuff were you actually working with um, at, at, in Iceland? What sort of things were they using? 500 pound would be the biggest bombs I remember seeing up there. And that's what we'd be loading up. And one day, uh, 
the sergeant came to us and said, um, we've got a job to do, boys. Um, one of the bombs is starting to sweat. Bombs would exude if, if they become unstable. Bombs exude a, a, a sort of uh, like a sweat. And when that happens, they're very dangerous. So he said, we, we'll have to um, dispose of them. So to dispose of bombs was uh, quite an iffy thing out there. You know, there weren't lovely roads like there are <laughs> today. And uh, so we had to get these two bombs on, onto canvas, lift them onto a truck very carefully, take them away from the area uh, very slowly and carefully. And, and the last um, hundred yards or so, we had to carry them because it was too bumpy to chance with the wagon and the bomb trailer. And um, so we had our wooden reamers and you need a block of gel ignite and a little wooden plug and a wooden reamer so that you don't make sparks or anything. And then uh, you wire it up, a detonator, put the detonator very carefully in this hole with the wood, wood and then you walk back to where the plunger is, the dynamo plunger with a handle and you just lean on the handle, boom it all goes up. You've got your tin helmets on, you hear a little bit of dust hitting it and uh, that's about it in Iceland really. Did you see much of the locals there? or? No, not really. There was a there was a, a small shop uh, not far away from Kaldetanis. We used to walk there sometimes, and uh, the women there were very pretty, lovely, creamy young girls were lovely, all the same sort of pallor. And uh, but they weren't very friendly. They, really, though, I think they were anti-British. And uh, I think they were pro-Norway or pro-German pro that, that way. But the British troops got there first. And um, the British troops, you know, there was um, geysers out there. And the British troops harnessed that hot water. And they'd never done it. You know, they've lived there all those years. And they'd never, mind you, we had the equipment and the means of doing it, I suppose. So, so you could have good hot showers and everything and it was all thermal? No, we didn't get it. <laughs> Not in the camp, no. no. No, it was pretty rugged at times. I got snow blind once. Had to go and see the dock and he says, oh, it'll be gone by lunchtime. So, oh, I hope so. And it was. So you couldn't see anything, yes? Completely? Well, oh, yes, you could see, but everything's white went in for breakfast and everything on the plate was white. They wouldn't know what it was. That was the other thing there though, all we ever got was fish. Fish, fish every day, we got fed up with fish. So if ever we get away from this place, we'll never eat fish again. What happens? When I met my uh, wife and we go on our honeymoon, we got fish every morning for breakfast in a big hotel in London. <laughs> yeah, amazing. So that was that. 
then I got posted to 617 Squadron, home on leave again, and uh, went on 617 Squadron, that was uh, an elite squadron, in as much that all the uh, pilots uh, and the operators of aircraft need not have uh, done any more flying, they'd all completed their operations, but they'd volunteered. There's Guy Gibson and Cheshire and those sort of people, Iveson and Knight, Bob Knight, and uh, they're, they're amazing people. And they they practiced over the Derwent in Derby for their low flying, for the bouncing bomb that Barnes Wallace invented. And uh, this Barnes Wallace was a marvellous man, backroom boffin as we call him. He was knighted after the war. But he also made the um, 12,000 pound bomb, what I used to call the beautiful bomb, called a tall boy. You could prick your finger on it, and uh, but it had fins on the other end and it was 12,000 pound weight. I think it was about 20 feet long to fit under the air, it could only take one bomb. And it used to fall at terrific speed, these fins used to upset it like a dart on it. Most bombs would tumble and fall and, you know, but this one just went straight like an arrow. And uh, that was the Barnes-Wallace bomb. Um, I flew I flew with the squadron to uh, Lozimouth on the Tirpitz raid because uh, it was dangerous to land with these big bombs. I suppose they made sure of an armour and went with them or armour, it was going to be safe otherwise. <laughs> so, and they refuelled at uh, Lozimath. Another part of the squadron went to Russia, and they were both within about 150 miles of the target. So, one from Russia and one from Lozimath in Scotland. And uh, apparently, one of them thinks they put one straight down the funnel of the turpits. You know, that was a magnificent... Uh, they, they tried to sink that for about five times, I think. That, that was a deadly enemy to the convoys of Russia and America. As you can imagine, it was the biggest battleship afloat. Could do 40 miles an hour. Incredible thing. About 4,000 crew or something. And uh, it was a monstrous thing. Anyway, they got that one eventually, and uh, from 617 I got posted to um, Timoth in Devon, which was another uh, strange thing. Uh, there was only two of us. Um, Barnes Wallace came to the 617 squadron with a big truck, and uh, told us about this special weapon. We're all sworn to secrecy, which of course doesn't mean anything now. And uh, we're all sworn to secrecy. And uh, and then he said uh, to the driver, take the tarpaulins off. And uh, someone said, oh, it's a boat, which it was, a beautiful boat, all varnished and shining and lovely. And that would be about seven metres, twenty feet or so long. 
and uh, there was half a dozen Lan Lancasters that had been modified in the Bombays to carry this boat. And the CO of the Armoury said, uh, all we need is two volunteers to go with this uh, boat. So there was a lot of shuffling of feet and hesitation, you know, and, uh, and then a mate of mine called Ron Goff, who's in Australia now, uh, he looked at me, he said, what about us two? So I said, uh, okay then, Ron. So we both stepped forward, two volunteers. But fortunately, the CO, after, after before we volunteered, he came forward, uh, you know, because it was such a quiet time, he came forward and says, it's not to, not to uh, go in the thing and drive it, it's only to maintain it. So that's not to... <laughs> because it was going to be a suicide mission. And uh, this boat was full of torpex in the bows. And uh, we got posted to SDL London, which means special duty list. And uh, from there, we went to Tynmouth in Devon, for all places. I thought they misspelled it. I thought they meant Tynemouth, you know, up north. But no, it was Tynmouth in Devon. And HMS Mount Stewart, which obviously we thought was a ship. And uh, when we get there, uh, we're shown all around the quay and everything. And this naval officer showed us uh, our workshop, which was behind a, a pub called the Devon Arms. And um, he said, no, you know, he gave us the keys. He said, now this is your responsibility. No one is allowed in here except and gave us about four names who were allowed there. And uh, that's where I met the wife. She was a, that was her mother's cafe, which was next door to the Devon Arms. And uh, the wife was a waitress there. And uh, there's this, uh, this petty officer who used to come in, I won't mention his name, but he used to come in and ask uh, Patricia, my wife, used to ask her for a plate of shirt lifters, please, and a, and a sausage on toast. And her, her mother's called Mrs. Brown, and all the troops there, there was a lot of Marines and a lot of Navy, and only two RAF. I have a picture there of, of the whole lot, if you want to see it. Yeah. And um, they used to call her Mar Brown, Mar Brown's Cafe, but she called it the Victory Cafe. And um, what was I saying? That's where I met the wife. And uh, then the day came when uh, Barnes Wallace came down to the uh, workshop and uh, went over all the gear with us, electrical, magnetic gear and all this sort of stuff to do with the boat and uh, the gear that held it in the boat, in the plane and, and all that sort of stuff, going over it all. He was a marvellous chap. He seemed to me more like an old English farmer, the way he dressed and, you know, no airs or graces. And uh, 
the day came when we uh, had to load it up to a plane. Now a plane came and, and we don't know where it came from but we assumed it came from our squadron 617 because it was tied up with it and uh, landed at Holden Moor which is just above the township of Tynmouth only a couple of miles up a hill and uh, we loaded it up and we took off we flew around from Holden Moor around the pier Tynmouth Pier which was you know deserted and when we were just off the pier the uh, bomb doors opened and uh, this marine, volunteer marine got in, very brave chap, he got in, we could see the whites of his knuckles when he got in and held the steering wheel and uh, you know he had uh, all this stuff on, like flippers and stuff to swim with and uh, all of a sudden there was a click and we heard him scream as he went down, probably to, you know, hide his own feelings. And uh, we, we stood and watched as it went down, three big chutes opened. And they were about 90 feet across, these chutes, three of them, huge things. And the boat dropped, because that, that would have been quite a weight, probably the same, about 12,000, 10,000, 12,000 pounds. And, uh, and it hit the water. He obviously pressed the right button and the magnetic releases threw the chutes off. And he just drove away around into the quayside back where we started. And uh, it was a resounding success. So that, that's uh, roughly my, my story. When you joined 617 Squadron, was that right at the beginning of 617 Squadron? Or uh, no, no. I think it was, um, they'd been going for, for a month or two. But that was before the dams raid? Oh, no. No? No. Okay. No, just after the dams raid. But I did see a couple of planes there with the uh, bombs on and the gear that revolved the bombs. And... Uh, the, I believe the air crew used to call them the pregnant ducks. <laughs> but there were still two there when I arrived there. But I just missed the dams, right? So were they still, um, at that stage, if they still had some loaded up, were they still going to be using them for other things at that time? Were they thinking no, no, there was no other. No, these tall boys that Barnes Wallace invented took over from them because they could uh, bomb submarine pens and that on, on the coast of Holland and France you know they could go through 20 feet of concrete these these tall boys fantastic these bouncing bombs we could only do one thing how many armourers um, did it take to load up a tall boy uh, about four was it the same sort of process as a um, normal bomb load no no very different Tell me about the process. It's all very different. Um, well, they're on a trolley to start with. A crane had to lift them onto a trolley, it was so heavy. And uh, they'd be wheeled along. There's a chap upstairs with, with a, a winch. 
This happens with all bombs. Chap upstairs inside the plane with the winch. There's little holes in different places in the plane for, for different series of bombs. But for one big one like this, there was a big winch. And uh, he'd be winching it up. And, and it would be strapped in. The tall boy had a strap. There's only bomb I know that had a strap. And uh, there was someone on the tail and a couple on each side guiding it. Make sure it was going up straight, you know. So it was a fairly simple process, really. All been worked out well beforehand. And when the bomb was released, that strap released with the... Yeah. 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 But a normal bomb load, I'll say normal, you could have um, maybe six, five hundred pounders and what they called a cookie, eight thousand pound bomb. That was like three dustbins. Two dustbins full of explosive and the third one would be empty and that would be like a tail. So it went one way. But uh, they were blockbusters, you know, they just, as soon as they hit the surface of somewhere, Tall boy had a different job, it had to penetrate. Had to penetrate the armour plating of the turpits, which nothing else could do. Did they ever have accidents with the, those big bombs, the cookies and the... No. No, I had one one near escape with a, a two thousand pound armour piercing bomb. There's uh, four of us, one on each corner, because that had a what they call a bomb carrier fixed on it, and there's crutches. It takes four people to work a crutch on each corner, and uh, a chap upstairs went and pressed the wrong button. Instead of winding it up, it just dropped. It just hit my shoulder and knocked me off. One chap died, and the other two were pretty seriously injured. That's the only accident I ever came across. You saw some terrible sights, though. Saw planes landing with uh, undercarriage down, they think, you know. Some terrible accidents. I've seen some Blenheims come in and almost cartwheel. I always saw some, saw some nasty stuff. And uh, rear turrets were a pretty sight sometimes. What life was like on 617 Squadron in terms of just the morale and the, um, the recreational side and that sort of thing? Oh, the morale was pretty good. Yes, you know, we had our canteens and um, the tea wagon used to come round. The WAF used to bring the tea wagon round and we used to have, you know, dispersals were quite big places and they were quite a long way from each other. They were like a big fry pan. You know, they had the, the narrow entrance and then the big concrete circle so that the planes could uh, swing round for compass adjustment and that sort of thing. And we'd be working underneath and sometimes the engines are, uh, you know, zooming away to, 
testing the engines and so we used to uh, go out to the local um, pub and have a drink we, um, when I was at Manchester in those bell tents we went out one night and we went and saw uh, the Dorley D'Arth company of um, Pirates of Penzance, the original cast, went and saw them. So there was the lighter side, but um, and morale was pretty good amongst the boys. Always laughing and joking. And we always stood and watched for the planes coming back. Sometimes we'd see a nasty accident, other times they'd come back and they'd be quite good and dead chuffed, they'd done their job and come back. I've seen them get out sometimes and kiss the ground, pleased to be home. I remember one tail gunner saying, saying to the skipper, I wish you'd told me, skipper, we're coming back so low over the ditch, which was the channel they called the ditch. He said, well, I brought my fishing gear with me. That, you know, so quite good morale amongst the troops. Yes. Um, so, when did you come to New Zealand? Um, 1946, 66, sorry. Okay. <laughs> Got married in 46 and uh, went into business with the wife, with the mother and the cafe. Were, were there many, uh, well, any Kiwis on the ground crew in 617? Oh. Yes, I never met any personally. There were aircrew, some aircrew that were Kiwis, and a lot of Canadians, Australians. Yeah. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.